1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Filippo De Kirico, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. I'm here today with Professor Stephen Gross, Associate Professor of History and Director of the Center of European and Mediterranean Studies at New York University. Thank you for being on the show, Stephen.
0: Well, thank you very much, Filippo, for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Today, we're talking about your new book, Energy and Power, Germany in the Age of Oil, Atoms, and Climate Change, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. So, Energy and Power is the first comprehensive history of German energy and climate policy from World War II to the present. The book describes several energy transitions, um, such as the dramatic shift to oil that nearly wiped out the coal sector in the 50s and 60s, the oil shocks, the rise of the green movement in the 1970s and 1980s the gas trade with Russia, and the transitions to renewable power today. Energy and Power shows how debates over energy profoundly shaped the course of German history, and it is a fascinating read and a timely book. But before we delve into the book, I was wondering if you could tell us something about yourself, your background, and how this project came about.
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, again, thank you, uh, Filippo, and thank you to the to the New Book Network. It's really nice to be here to be and and to have the opportunity to talk about the book. Um, I teach history at NYU. I've been interested in history for a long time, um, uh, but actually, before I went to graduate school to get a PhD, I went to UC Berkeley. I worked at the Um, Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is part of the Department of Commerce. So I have a background in economics, and I was a double economics and history major uh, and undergraduate. So part of what I have been interested in doing is kind of merging the study of economics and the study of history. Uh, And I think that that uh, has been of more interest to a broader audience ever since the financial crisis in 2007 uh, uh, and 2008. Um, In terms of this book, um, I got the idea to work on energy in Germany when I was working on my first book and I was in Berlin doing archival research uh, at uh, the Bundesarchiv uh, and other archives uh, in 2008-2009. And it was the winter there and that was one of the times that Russia and Ukraine got into a gas dispute Um, and they temporarily, Russia temporarily shut off the gas flow uh, through Eastern Europe. Um, It made the news, uh, you know, for about two or three weeks, uh, all the Berlin newspapers were talking about, are we going to have heat for the winter? Uh, it turns out that they did. Uh, some Eastern European countries were a little bit worse off. Uh, it passed, but this made me realize that you know there is this other geopolitical dimension to, to, to energy policy. And it's very controversial as well. I remember. So I did my uh, German language study program back in 2003 in Augsburg. Uh, And at the time, uh, Germany had just decided to phase out nuclear power. And my host, uh, my host family said, you know, we've decided to to end nuclear power. And at the time, I thought, oh, I I, I didn't really grasp the stakes of it. Um, But then over time, it became clear that energy is, you know, intensely controversial. In Germany, uh, you know, I, I would discuss it with with my friends and colleagues when I was there during my dissertation research. Uh, like I said, in 2008 and 2009, and even then, it was apparent that you know many people loved what Germany was doing, and many people hated what Germany was doing. And so I thought there, you know, there could be something here uh, in terms of a topic. Um, uh, yeah, so that's that. That's how I got to it. Uh, and you know, we can talk more about this as as the conversation goes on. But as I began to do reading uh, about German energy policy, it struck me that there had been a lot of really good histories written about particular energy sources in Germany, right? There's a lot of work done in an earlier age, you know, about German hard coal uh, and the Ruhr, kind of from a different perspective. There have been a lot of um, on German nuclear power, uh, uh, diplomatic historians, uh, historians of Ostpolitik had written a lot about uh, natural gas or, you know, had, had touched on that, um, uh, and, and then there was a burgeoning kind of literature among more political scientists, uh, sociologists on uh, the post2000 energy vendor. Um, but nothing had really put all these pieces together so that that's that's what I was hoping to do with this book.
1: This is really a fascinating approach, um, telling the story of a country from the standpoint of its energy resources and its energy policy. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how does it fit into, let's say, the the wider historiography of Germany.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a good question, and and I think my my book says speaks in different ways to different types of historians. It says one thing to German historians. I I would say it has kind of a different angle for energy historians, and then maybe a different angle still for broader European historians or kind of transatlantic historians. And for German historians, I think. Um, there's been a way of telling or explaining Germany's uh, unique or special path uh, in terms of its energy policy. You know, that they, they've been, a since 2000, a global leader in solar and renewable power um, and energy efficiency. And much of the story, the historical narrative that we have about that is mostly it's uh, the rise of the Green Party, it's a group of uh, like tinkerers, uh, social movements who are interested in renewable energy. You know, coming out of the oil shock, coming out of Chernobyl, and 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 it's a bottom up story where the state is not there. It's really kind of a bottom up story about grassroots movements, uh, non state actors, and in some ways it's a triumphalist narrative too, right? It's greens or people sympathetic to the green movement telling a story about their successes, and I think that there's a lot to that story. Um, but the more I delved into the research, I found there were a lot of different actors, uh, uh, political insiders, as I call them in the book, who are also very interested in changing Germany's energy system towards a more greener approach. Um, there's a big influential reform wing in the Social Democratic Party, uh, initially under the leadership of Erhard Epler. Um, there's a whole cast of uh, experts in um, in major think tanks who were thinking about energy for a long time uh there's even certain business groups and export industries uh who were interested in moving in a greener direction so there is a broader story to tell that's uh this this german pioneering if that's what you want to call it approach towards renewables uh circa 2000 uh where they passed a lot of groundbreaking legislation which you know i'm happy to talk about in you know and once 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 we get to that chapter, um, that that uh, I explain this as a synthesis or an interaction between. Political insiders and political outsiders, and many of the political insiders are not interested necessarily in saving the climate. That they want renewables as a way to promote exports. They see it as a big new uh, potential export engine. They see it as a way to overcome questions of energy security. So that that's that's part of the story is adding nuance uh, to this kind of green triumphalist narrative for for German historians. Um, for energy historians, I uh, think that the book is trying to offer a different way of thinking about transitions. So energy transitions as a theme or as an analytical category, um, I think is emerging. It's been around uh, in a certain type of uh, economic history where people really look at prices and technology and that this is the way that energy systems ebb and flow and uh, rise and fall. Uh, People like Vaclav Smil or, you know, Somebody like Wrigley, who's writing on the British Industrial Revolution, you know, and they, they explain that as uh, the price of coal falls, uh, the price of wood increases and, you know, new, new technology comes on the market. And there's not a lot of politics in the story. Um, and But but then there's a very interesting kind of counter story uh, that's been developed by fantastic historians like Timothy Mitchell, or well, social scientists, uh, and Andreas Malm. Who say it's not really about price and technology? Uh, it's really about social control over labor uh, and over labor power. Um, and that that was really provocative to me. But on the other hand, I thought, well, they're leaving price out of the story almost entirely. Like Timothy Mitchell has this point about coal. Uh, you know that oil superseded coal not at all because it was more energetically efficient or its price was lower, but it's all about kind of labor relations. But you know, I I, I in doing this research, I realized price is important, but the price of an energy and the technology around it, but it's not everything. There's more to the story. And so I, I, in the introduction, lay out kind of a, a, a schematic framework that, that looks at, you know, you know, looking at the state as an actor, looking at the market and looking at social groups and seeing how the, these kind of three levels interact with one another. And in, in the state, it's obviously contested. There are political parties uh, who are vying to influence the energy system. Uh, and then looking at, at how people mobilize ideas about the future, how people mobilize crises, um, how people link energy to other issues, like link it to jobs or link it to exports and how people use energy to build political coalitions, uh, uh, for other reasons. Uh, and, and this is how, uh, in my opinion, at least in the case in Germany, energy transitions have happened. It's not only or, or ever about energy. It's a. You know, it's about a lot of other stuff um, and labor, control over labor and, and kind of the workforce is part of that linkage. But 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 there are a lot of other linkages going on as well. Um, uh, and then so for broader kind of European historians, um, one of the things that I think as, of German historians, but European historians in general that have they, they, they focused really in terms of the 20th century on for very understandable reasons, Um explaining World War II, explaining the Holocaust, explaining the repercussions of the Holocaust and kind of how that reshaped um, uh, 20th century political ideology and democracy uh, uh, and 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 communism on both halves of the continent. And so there's a very well developed narrative. If you read people like Tony Judd or Mark Mazower, where, you know, it's, it's mostly about politics, mostly about ideology centers, World War II centers, the Holocaust. Um, Uh, and energy is not there, you know, it's not there at all. Uh, you know, these, these books are written a while ago, but even in, in, in more kind of recent grand narratives, energy, even the environment rarely feature. And so I think that's one thing I'm, I'm really trying to do is to say, we need to kind of shift to understand the current climate crisis. We, we need to foreground the 1990s and the early 2000s as this moment that we need to understand where, uh, I, and here, here I draw from Helmut Walzer Smith, uh, a German historian of uh, 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 the 19th century and earlier. He he talks about 1942 is, or, sorry, 1941 is the vanishing point. Like how how to understand the Holocaust in German history and European history that all uh, kind of explanations move towards that and then come out of that. Um, and here I, I say, well, this climate crisis is going to be a new vanishing point, right? Um, the, you know, or that's one way that I think that we need to think about it, that we need to understand why it's happening. We need to understand why Europeans and Americans did so little to prevent it in the eighties and the nineties when climate science was emerging and people realized, yes, we are facing, or we will face a climate crisis. And why it's only now that we're kind of getting our act together. If, you know, even we are. So, so that's, that's trying to shift the perspective, I think, and say, look, 1989 and these other political moments are important, uh, but also this kind of moment where we realize climate change is a problem, but nothing is being done about it. And, and that if, if we use that as a, as, as kind of an endpoint that we seek to explain, then, then this kind of gives us a different way of getting into European history or, or American or global history in general.
1: Yes, this is true. And I think your book was released at the right time. German energy issues made the headlines quite often over the last few months of course the gas trade with russia was disrupted by the war in ukraine the Nord stream 2 pipeline was sabotaged um there are ongoing debates about nuclear power and these days we heard that the german economy is in a recession and energy prices are a major factor but what your book tells us is that energy has been a topic of heated debate over the last 70 years in germany and probably much more in germany than in other industrialized countries so Let's talk about the book, and let's start from the beginning. What were the terms of the debate in the 50s, during Reconstruction? What your book tells us is that the economic miracle of post-war Germany was actually marked by a series of energy crises.
0: Yeah, so this, uh, the book, kind of the organizing principle, is to look at energy transitions, and I say there have been five of them uh, since 1945. The first was this shift away from hard coal, uh, to oil, which happened in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, the next is the rise of nuclear power, um, uh, the rise of natural gas, the rise of what I call energy efficiency ideas. And then lastly, the rise of renewable powers, uh, around 2000. So this first energy transition, uh, happens as the economic miracles, you know, is unfolding. Um, and that there's, uh, You know, this huge wave of oil uh, that uh, enters into Europe uh, beginning in the mid 50s, gathering steam and reaching a crescendo in the mid to late 1960s. Um, And Germany, as one of the major coal, hard coal producing countries in in Europe, right, it exports a lot of coal, uh, doesn't only consume it itself, that this uh, oil directly competes with coal eventually um, in Not not in every use, but in a lot of different uses. Uh, And so this very much threatens um, the, uh, you know, a major industrial base and a major uh, kind of driver of employment in Germany in the 1950s and the 1960s. So understanding the social frictions that come with that is important. if you look in here, I wish I could show a graph, but one of the, the striking things uh, that you see if you look at primary energy use, primary energy is the total amount of energy used uh, not uh, it, it, you know, from when it enters into the economy from when it is used at the final end. Um, uh, as a percentage, hard coal just declines precipitously. From something like you know eighty, you know, in the eighty percentiles down to the twenty or thirty percentiles over the course of uh, nineteen fifty to nineteen seventy-three, and oil just balloons, and and it's it's incredibly dramatic. So this this shift is more dramatic in the case of Germany than almost any other European country. I mean, Britain, France, and Italy have their own shifts going on, um, but you know, each each country is a little bit different. Um, Uh, And so this this shift politicizes energy from a very early date uh, uh, in Germany. That's that's one of the main contentions of chapters one and chapters three, that this the decline of hard coal creates political tensions. uh, And German leaders, Konrad Adenauer, Ludwig Erhard, uh, eventually uh, fear that this is this this hard coal collapse is going to have major social repercussions. And in fact, Germany. um, Begins uh, in in a type of energy crisis. The the Korean War uh, uh, is experienced as a series of energy shortages to a certain extent in Germany. Uh, that this uh, war stimulates demand globally. German uh, factories begin producing a lot more, and all of a sudden, coal becomes very hard to get. Um, coal prices uh, get get reconfigured. Um, they have to do electricity, sorry, electricity, uh, you know, rationing for a while, uh, and and so this, in some ways, in 1950 51, evokes fears of returning to uh, World War II times, you know, era scarcity. Um, so that's one of the major kind of points: is that right from the beginning, the founding of the Federal Republic, energy is 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 a problem, uh, or it's you know it's problematized. Um, but then. Uh, Kind of another major aspect of this is the debate about how should you price energy. Uh, sh- you know, wh- how who should determine the price of energy, uh, and should it be high or should it be low? Um, Ludwig Erhard talks about freeing prices. You know he's famous, uh, perhaps rightly or wrongly, for you know the 1948 currency reform. Uh, at least he takes ownership of that, even if he didn't institute it himself. Uh, and his public persona, and then the CDU's persona, is built on this social market economy that's based on free prices. But if you actually look, that the price of coal was controlled uh, by various state organs or the the ECSC, the European Coal and Steel Community, the high authority. Uh, up until 1955. uh, And Erhard did that because he wanted a low energy price uh, to help German industry and to help them compete abroad uh, as an export market. Uh, And then he very consciously as well uh, gave out a lot of subsidies, uh, uh, low interest rate loans, and other types of things to promote oil to put pressure onto coal. Uh, So once... uh, Coal was free. It would have to uh, once once the price of coal was was freed in nineteen fifty five. It would have to compete with other energies. Um, so he was of the mind that the price of energy should be low. But even though he freed the price of energy or the price of coal in nineteen fifty five legally it, there was there was a kind of gentleman's agreement between Erhard and and the barons of the coal that, that, that they they would have this kind of unofficial cap on the price of coal and keep it low uh, and this is what Erhard wanted because he he wanted to to facilitate growth throughout the rest of the economy and and this creates a lot of tensions because other branches of the economy are growing and expanding making money are able to invest in infrastructure and coal is not able to do that because it has such a low price and so they're constantly kind of harping on erhard erhard is seeing is like the big enemy of the Ruhr. There are all these great cartoons, uh, these political cartoons that you know uh, show him in a bad manner. Um, uh, and this comes to a head in 1958 when there's the first uh, coal crisis uh, that uh, is uh, a function of having too much coal. Uh, that this is a product of uh, kind of. Um, uh, overzealous uh, forecasts for how much energy the German economy was going to be using Um, uh, uh, under uh, estimated forecasts for how much oil was going to be used. Uh, 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 Good weather, which meant that less coal was burnt in the winter, Um, uh, not a recession, but a mild slowdown in the economy that reduced overall energy demand. So, and and then coming out of Suez uh, there's, there's the Suez, uh, uh, canal crisis, which stopped oil flowing, which I'll talk about uh, in a little bit more detail um, in a few minutes, in, in 1956, that this led, led coal producers to really double down and to begin to invest more uh, and expand output. Um, but then this kind of contingency, this concatenation of events unleashed this first coal crisis where then there's too much coal being produced. Um, and there's major controversy about what to do. Er Erhard says, well, let's just let the price of energy be free. We're gonna let it fall. People are gonna lose jobs. Miners are gonna have to move out of the Ruhr, And this is the social market economy. We're just gonna have to deal with it. Uh, and the coal unions uh, and the coal employers have a very different opinion, and they see we need social support, um, and we can't let the social market economy fully extend to coal. And so th- th- this is the big debate. Uh, and eventually, Erhard is forced to accept uh, a, a certain need for state intervention, um, and but, but only after, you know, miners uh, organize and begin to march uh and you know demonstrate so th- these are some of the first kind of major social mobilizations uh in uh the federal republic of germany that happen and it's around the issue of energy um so to pan out one of the things you know two of the points that i make in the chapter is is that um, social market economy looks very different from the standpoint of energy. It's not some free market, you know, we, we have this kind of hagiography of the free market economy uh, in West Germany uh, in the 50s and the 1960s, but energy is very contested. And in fact, the price of energy is very much manipulated by the state. Um, Uh, As an aside to that, you know, there's a whole story about how how the oil majors uh, themselves are very much manipulating and controlling the price of energy. You know, if you look at the price of crude oil, it's basically flat up until the late 1960s because of this oligopoly. uh, And there's a lot of uh, inquiries in 1955 and 1956 that, that that investigate this in Germany and say, look, this is this is not a free market at all in energy, uh, and we need to do something about it. So this is, you know, that's that, that that's one point that uh, comes out of the chapter that the social market economy is not so markety uh, when you look at it from the standpoint of energy. The other is is the simple fact of pointing to how energy is hyper-politicized from this early debate. And it's not only coal. So there is an argument to say, well, it's not energy as such that's uh, politicized, but it's really only coal. But this is when people begin to think about energy as a category uh, of kind of social thought or political thought, there's a a first energy parliamentary inquiry that's uh, organized after the oil crisis. uh, And they bring experts uh, from different parts of the economy, coal experts, oil experts, nuclear power experts, natural gas experts, and they call it an energy inquiry. uh, And people, uh, uh, Heinrich Gutermuth, who's the leader of the coal union, uh, he um, is calling for an energy committee to organize energy affairs. Uh, so th- th- this is when energy begins to be thought of kind of as a category, not just individual fuel. So that's another thing that, that that emerges in this chapter.
1: So one of the things that I appreciate the most about your book is that it is not only um, an industrial history or a political history of energy in Germany, but it is also a great intellectual history you talk extensively about how different schools of um, economic thought and policymaking um, dealt with the topic of energy. I was wondering if you could tell us something about the Ordo-Liberals.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, there's this really deep and fascinating historiography about German economic thought. I mean, I think it's really well-developed uh, among German historians and um uh, you know, where ordoliberalism comes from? Is it neoliberalism, ordo liberalism being this, this kind of, uh, uh, geez, how do I even define it? It's, you know, it's a hard thing to define, um, <laughs> uh, a school of thought that emerges in the 1930s and the 1940s among primarily German speaking economists, uh, who are reacting against, uh, Nation, the, the, the national socialist quasi-planned economy, and who are calling for a strong state to create a framework through which markets and competition and pricing work. Um, there are different ways to define ordoliberalism and that in and of itself, I think, is you know, is a big controversy. How do you define it? How do you define it? These are the you know neoliberalism. Um, but what I try and show in this, in chapter two, is that there is a change in how German economists uh, and the political uh, uh, leaders that they advise, how they think about energy in the 1950s and the 1960s. Um, and there's a lot going on uh, that, that that motivates this change. On the one hand, you you begin with people like uh, Alfred muller armack who's in the economics ministry. Uh, you know, So he is an ordo liberal, he uh, is, you know, involved in economic policy, and he's representative of, of how Erhard, uh, as economics minister, you know, economics minister, is to a certain extent influenced by ordo-liberal ideas, uh, and how economic policy, uh, if it draws on economic thought at all, is tends to draw on ordo-liberalism more than other schools of thought. Uh, and ordo-liberalism does not see energy as all that important or different from other parts of the economy, that it should be... Um, uh, subjected to the market, just like anything else. Um, uh, that uh, uh, competition, uh, small scale, preferably uh, uh, in terms of the industrial organization should kind of control or be the framework by which energy policy is made. Um, uh, but increasingly, um, German policymakers want to know um, more about the future, that economic forecasting becomes more and more important. It's actually, and and, and so they begin to desire, uh uh techniques for looking into the future and predicting how much energy how much coal how much oil germany is going to need going forward this is partly a reaction to uh the korean crisis which is an energy crisis the coal crisis of 1958 the suez canal crisis of 1956 that you know politicians are realizing energy is you know it ebbs and flows and we need to know more about it um and so they begin to, you know, politicians began to want to kind of look into the crystal ball of the future and think more about what's going to happen to energy uh, uh, consumption going forward. Um, and ordo liberals can't, you know, don't have the toolkit to really do that. Nor do they really even believe in, you know, forecasting. Uh, it's part of, you know, it's it's one step on the way towards economic planning um, to a certain extent. So. Uh, interestingly enough, it's it's the, the OEEC at the European level uh, that begins to do some of the first energy forecasts um, with uh, uh, the Hartley Report and the Robinson Report in 1956 and 1960. Again, this is in the context of um, European economic growth, and it raises what's called the energy question uh, at the European level, that these forecasts done by the OEEC predict that, Europeans are going to be consuming a whole heck of a lot more energy going forwards. Uh, And they're very concerned that Europe is not going to be able to produce its own energy to meet that demand. And so that energy is going to have to come from somewhere else. So the big worry is that it's going to lead to importing hydrocarbons, uh, Eurotom and kind of the push into nuclear power is one potential answer to this. Um, uh, But what it does on kind of the granular economic level is begin to, to, Develop techniques at the European level for forecasting, and so I, I actually, you know, was read these two reports and the appendices very closely to figure out how exactly they were doing forecasting. Uh, and a lot of it was kind of back of the envelope stuff. There was there was kind of an art to it. It's not super formalized, and there was a lot of willingness to admit at this early phase that one energy could substitute for another energy, right? And that energies would compete with each other, that coal and oil would compete and that whichever had the lower price that people would use that. Um, so the Germans begin to do some of their own forecasting, uh, for growth, you know, th- this is the time when like people like Matthias Schmelzer um, talking about the emergence of the growth paradigm and how uh, economic policymaking is is fascinated by, by by growth and producing it. And Germans, even more than Americans, come, come to think that uh, energy is necessary for growth, that it can't, that one cannot substitute for energy. Uh, Americans have a much more kind of coming from a more neoclassical background, have a much, uh, greater optimism that market forces will be able to substitute one energy for another or energy altogether. This leads to kind of a doctrine of infinite substitutability that reaches an apogee in Julian Simon in 1980 and in the early 1980s. But already in the 60s, you see this among American economists. Uh, And so energy is not seen to be this this kind of crucial pillar of the economy. Uh, But for German economists, it is. And so they build it into the models. They think about it very clearly. They worry about energy scares because they're experiencing them. And they begin to think about what what can we do to, to prevent you know, a, a new energy crisis from happening, but the models do become more rigid and and lead them to to predict, uh, you know, that, yes, um, we're going to be consuming a huge amount of energy going forward. But just just to circle back by the late 60s, it's not the ordo liberals who are doing this. It's a whole, whole other cast of kind of technocratic uh, yeah, energy economists.
1: By the end of the 60s, the Social Democratic Party joins uh, the government. Right in 1966 yeah. with the, with the first uh, Grosse Coalition. Yeah, and um, does energy policy change?
0: Yes, yes, and no. Um, so they uh, so in, in 1966 a lot happens. Uh, there's some American oil companies that begin to buy up German oil companies. 67, uh, the second Suez Canal crisis hits. Um, and they, the, the Social Democrats begin to think we need to build our own big energy companies uh, to be able to compete on a global level and to weather these big energy crises or these big energy challenges that are facing us. So Germany does not have an oil major. It uh, doesn't have as, as a legacy of uh, uh, the two world wars, uh, That its effort to build a German oil major was was, was uh, dismembered. Um, and uh it was reliant fully on other uh large oil companies you know the seven sisters uh five americans uh, uh- a British and a Dutch company, but by 1966, the Germans, uh, uh, inspired by social democratic leaders Carl Schiller, who's the new Economics Minister, uh, and even Willy Brandt begins to think about this, um, and uh, and Helmut Schmidt um, say we need to build our own big energy company uh, to manage these these crises. So that's that's one of the big changes that begins to happen, um, and they begin to think more formally about forecasts as well. And this kind of reaches uh, uh, another level. Once uh, the Social Democrats become the lead party with the FDP, uh, and then in 1973 you have the, uh, the first formal energy program, which is something that the Christian Democrats, you know, would never think of doing. But this this is uh, not economic planning, but it is a way, an attempt to kind of think about the future of energy, set guidelines and priorities.
1: And it uh, it is published only a few weeks before the first oil shock, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it comes out uh, in, you know, they they begin to develop it in, you know, already in 1971 and 1972, they're thinking about it. Um, This is in the context of uh, movements on the international oil. Uh, uh, market where it's becoming clear that the price of oil is going to go up. And so the German leaders, Ulf Lansky in particular, begin to think about this in 72. And then in 73, they work on it in the summer. It appears in uh, uh, the early fall of 1973. Um, and then the oil shock hits, you know, a month later. Uh, and so it's it's kind of this this striking uh, uh, concatenation of events that's very interesting from the standpoint of energy.
1: Before talking about the oil shock. So far, we've only been um, talking about hydrocarbons, basically. Coal, oil, but there's also nuclear power. What is interesting is that nuclear power begins to develop in Germany at a time where the government is pretty much following the ordo-liberals. So they, they despise concentration, they favor competition, they advocate little interference of state power, isn't there a big contradiction with the development of a national nuclear program?
0: Yeah, it's it, it's a very hard thing to reconcile. And I had a hard time trying to understand how is a CDU government that's inspired by order becoming so interested in nuclear power. And it's partly a different cast of experts who were involved. Um, and but, but there is a big debate. If we're gonna do, develop nuclear power, should it be done by the private sector or should it be done by the public sector? Um, uh, Germany begins its nuclear program later, obviously, uh, coming out of World War II. They weren't allowed to have nuclear material uh, uh, once once they were, although planning begins very quickly to um, create a nuclear industry, in part because uh, scientists and economists thought that nuclear power was kind of a silver bullet for a lot of different things, that it's not only about energy, but this is a way to, just to develop technology in general. It's a potential engine for exports. Uh, it can be used for advances in in, in medicine um, and other fields. Um, uh, and so it's, in some ways, in the 1950s, a vehicle that a lot of people pour their hopes into. Uh, it takes a lot of work to disassociate Nuclear energy from the bomb, uh, and that's part of the story where uh, the Goethean, uh, you know, the Gottingen Manifesto, you know, is a statement by Germany's leading scientists saying that we're not going to develop the bomb, and we don't think that we should. Um, but then the the discussion internally is is do we let the private sector go ahead, or do we have big state involvement? And initially, the CDU says uh, we should try and let the private sector, you know, go ahead. Um, And that doesn't work. Uh, There's too much risk involved um, that uh, companies are not investing in uh, nuclear energy or they don't want to. The big utilities, right, the companies that would be running and using the nuclear power have very little interest, actually, in developing nuclear power. Uh, uh, RVA, which is the biggest utility in Germany at the time, you know, they say we have loads of brown coal. We don't need, you know a huge development program for nuclear power. Uh, And so it's really government bureaucrats and scientists who begin to push this because they're afraid that Germany is gonna fall behind in the nuclear race and lose out on the development of particular types of technology and lose out on what they think is going to be the world's next big export market. Um, And so exports becomes the reason why uh, uh, one wing of the CDU and then the SPD really get into nuclear power uh, and change the the government approach uh, uh, in the 1960s uh, and through a series of nuclear programs that they begin to take on much more of the risk. uh, They draw from. From American law in terms of developing their own insurance policy uh, for insuring against the risk of nuclear catastrophe, where the state assumes almost all of the risk. Uh, they subsidize uh, nuclear energy a ton, um, uh, and and this is really a top-down energy transition, uh, and and that uh, there's a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, huge amounts of public funding, both into research and development, but also into the actual building of nuclear plants that happens in the 1960s. Uh, and and it's an example of uh, you know an energy transition that doesn't happen at all because of prices, right? That it, it, it happens entirely because scientific experts and economic elites say we need this for such and such a reason, so we're going to use the state uh, uh, to build to build a new nucleo- uh, you know to build a new energy branch. And here here I draw from uh, uh, Mariano Mazzucato's idea of the entrepreneurial state, right? That, that this is the state actually assuming the role of an entrepreneur.
1: Was there opposition to nuclear power in
0: those early stages? Yes, but but minimal opposition. So there were some people who feared that it would be used uh, uh, to develop, you know, nuclear weapons. Uh, that was a concern. There was kind of a um, uh, a more conservative, small-scale um, uh, environmental movement that was against using nuclear power, and they they staged some local protests that really didn't take off in a major way, uh, like they did in the nineteen seventies. Um, but this is more of kind of a right, not right-wing. Well, on the right, more conservative, uh, locally organized, uh, you know, opposition, uh, but. All the big parties were in favor of it. So there was, you know, that's one of the things that emerges in chapter, uh, in the chapter on nuclear power and then the chapter on the rise of the green that all, you know, the FDB, the CDU and the SPD are all majorly in support of nuclear power because they think it's going to solve Germany's energy problems and because they think it's a big new export market. And so anybody who opposes it doesn't really have a political voice or a political uh, 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 group to call their home.
1: So. In the fall of 1973, the first oil shock comes. What does it mean for Germany?
0: Yeah, so this is is a shock. It's uh, experienced as a shock. Uh, there there there's there's been a lot of interesting work written about kind of the oil shock. Christopher Dietrich, uh, from the standpoint of the oil producers, and sees this as kind of an emancipatory moment of trying to recapture sovereignty for 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 Germans. It's You know, experience is a shock. You read the newspaper headlines of November and December of 1973, and people are forecasting the end of kind of post-war growth, uh, the end of welfare, statements by politicians about, you know, every German job is at stake. So it's very much seen as a shock. Uh, Germans have no oil majors, so they're completely reliant on the American uh, and British and Dutch companies. Um, And the initial response is... Uh, first to try for European a European-wide approach, that there's a belief, uh, Willy Brandt in particular, thinks that the oil shock is going to show what Europe and the EC is really worth and and to try and approach this through a collaborative arrangement. That doesn't work. Uh, Britain and France begin to iron out their their own oil deals with Saudi Arabia. Um, Britain and other countries begin to prevent the export of refined products to the continent because they're trying to to husband oil for themselves. So there's kind of a beggar-thy-neighbor approach. The EC is a whole can agree on how to price energy because Germany has a liberal price and France and most other countries very much control the price of oil. So there's very little agreement on the European level. Um, There's one group of the Social Democrats who say this is our chance to really impose more economic planning. And and in fact, some of these ideas were designed uh, in theory, uh, even before the oil crisis, like controlling the price of energy, but those are not uh, opted for. Um, Instead, what 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 happens uh, is uh, uh, German German economic minister works with the big oil companies uh, to to bring in as much oil as possible. Lets them pay as kind of a, a a higher price, but put they 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 put kind of an unofficial cap on the price of oil that's coming in from these oil majors. Um, but The oil majors only provide about two thirds of Germany's oil. So in the fall of 1973 and the winter of 1974, uh, the other third of the oil comes from the Rotterdam spot market, which, you know, Rotterdam is this big center of refinery. There's an emerging kind of short term oil trade that's been growing since the 1960s. It's not only traders in Rotterdam, but traders based in Antwerp and London and the Ruhr and other parts of Europe, uh, even New York. Um, But this is where, the Germans go and buy oil uh, that they need. And they can pay any price that they want. And the price on Rotterdam skyrockets. Uh, and uh, uh, the economics minister, uh, a liberal, um, uh, speaks of a bifurcation in the price of oil in Germany. That if you can get, you know, if you go to a tank st- uh, station, petrol station and you're buying oil that's supplied by the major, you get one price that's a little bit lower. But if you're buying uh, petrol at a gas station that's supplied by an independent company that's buying on Rotterdam, the price is super, super high. Uh, and the pr- so the, the marginal price of energy of oil goes much higher in Germany than in other Western European states. And this uh, leads the German economy to begin to substitute uh Industry in particular, but even households, begin to substitute and to move away from oil towards other energies, back to coal, towards natural gas, uh, and to even use energy more efficiently, more more so than other countries, uh, because of its liberal energy regime and and because of its reliance on Rotterdam. The other thing that I'll say about the oil shock very, very quickly is is that... uh there there are then these big plans to go even bigger in the field of oil and to big even for for the spd to build even larger constellations of of uh corporate power to negotiate with oil companies so there's an effort to build germany's own major that that began in the 60s that they the spd puts a lot of energy puts a lot of money into this it's uh they try and merge veba with gelsenberg which are the two of the biggest oil companies they try and have Build Germany's own exploration company called Demonex, and they give it funding. It finds some fields in the, in the North Sea. but this is this is a catastrophe. It doesn't or, or sorry, maybe not a catastrophe, but it doesn't really work. Um, they, they also begin to pump a lot of money into synthesizing coal into oil and and to have big corporate constellations to do that. and that doesn't really work either. Uh, and then they also put a lot more money into nuclear power as well. So the, the the second revision or the first revision to the energy program comes out in 1974, and that has even bigger plans for more nuclear power. Um, and 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 this is one path that is followed.
1: So these are the responses from, from policymakers, from the government. But um, what happens in German society in the 70s after the oil shock?
0: Yeah, uh, great, great question. And there's a lot going on there. Uh, you know, and one of the interesting, fascinating things about the oil shock, uh, and this is not anything that I discovered. You know, energy historians know this is 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 that the Club of Rome report on the limits to growth comes out the, you know the year before, which you know, forecasted by 2020 or 2030, when when we're living right now, right, right, that the world is going to begin to enter into this catastrophic decline, because all the sinks are going to be overflowing with pollution, and all the resources are going to be used up. So this, this gives a certain amount of uh, belief, or credence to the belief that the oil shock marks a turning point uh, that the world is going to be uh, Limited by the scarcity of resources, by a scarcity of uh, of energy in particular, and so this is one concern that I think motivates environmental groups as well. That they are concerned about local pollution. You know, on the grassroots level, you, you see beginning even before the oil shock, the emergence of uh, of these local groups. Um, uh, that the, uh, protests uh, factories or other kind of environmental problems. But they also begin to be very concerned about um, uh, scarcity and limitations. They believe in the Club of Rome's reports and, and and they begin to criticize growth in general. So you see this shift kind of on a social level, trade unions begin to think about this, uh, but also uh, non-governmental protest organizations, you know, begin to critique growth and think about qualitative growth and say, we, we we need to revise how we think about economic growth. Erhard Epler in 1972 goes to a meeting by held by uh, uh, one of the biggest unions where he talks about qualitative growth. And, 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 and so this becomes a saying, so that's one thing that's going on that this kind of broader fear of, Running out of resources, leading to a critique of growth in general. Another thing is that you know, uh, and 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 this is the more w- well-known story among German historians is the rise of this very eclectic, heterogeneous uh, anti-nuclear protest movement that forms in 1975 around Ville uh, a- as a reaction to the push by German authorities on the federal and even more so on the state level. Um, to develop big nuclear plants without a lot of inputs uh, from uh, local groups and societies, um, that uh, the nuclear industry and the government is is forecasting an energy gap, and they say nuclear power is the solution to this, uh, but. People are very concerned about what nuclear power is going to do, not not only kind of on the macro level in terms of radiation and follow up, but even on the micro level. So there's a lot of concern among, uh, you know, uh, vintners that's uh, the cooling towers uh, are going to change the local climates. They're concern that the farmers are concerned about that as well. Um, uh, uh, uh People relying on fish are concerned that 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 you know river systems are going to be changed by the heating pollution. So there's a lot of local concerns that draws conservatives uh, or local protesters who are not kind of left wing. But then you also see it, you know, people coming out of the 1968 movement who you know kind peters out in Germany. They're looking for an outlet, and they see nuclear power becomes the symbol of. St- of concentrated state power run amok. Um, and so they enter the anti-nuclear movement as well. So you get this weird, eclectic, as I said, group of people with conservatives and farmers and Protestant parishioners, uh, left-wing uh, uh, communist mobilizers, professionals, legal scholars, professors. So it's as huge you know, this hugely eclectic movement that emerges and, and it and it grows after another wave of nuclear protests in nineteen seventy seven and nineteen seventy eight.
1: And those are the years when the Green Party is founded.
0: Yeah. So the, the, there's a lot feeding into the Green Party, uh, but but it, it does have its roots in the anti-nuclear movement. Uh, Jürgen Tritton later on would say in the 1990s, when talking about the nuclear phase out that Germany w- w- will institute, he says um, that the reason we founded the party was to stop nuclear power. That's uh, not entirely true, but, but, but this is a big part of why the Greens were formed. But it's connected to this larger critique of growth. Um, and what the you know what the Greens do, which is interesting, it, uh, is is they link it to uh, fears of the Third Reich coming back or the memory of the Third Reich. And so people, you know, one of the big questions is why is there, you know, such a powerful anti-nuclear movement in Germany and not in France or not in some other European countries? And it's a very hard thing to explain, and I don't purport to have uh, the entire answer. But one thing that the book does try and show is that there is uh, an ability of uh, People like Robert Junk, uh, who are become leaders of the anti-nuclear movement, or, or if not leaders who are associated with it, who say, look, they point to nuclear power. They say, look at that technology. That requires incredible state surveillance, and it requires a concentration of authority. And that's very reminiscent of what happened in Nazi Germany. And this is happening in the 1970s when Germany as a society is going through a lot of uh, inward rethinking of what uh, you know the previous generation did or people who were alive during World War II did in the Holocaust and how they supported the Nazis. So, you know, Villebrand's uh, knee fall, uh, you know, kind of begins, Holocaust miniseries comes out later on in the decade. So this is a profound decade in German history for kind of reco- Germans reconciling with the Third Reich um, and thinking about their past. And the anti-nuclear movement, you know, connects nuclear power to the Third Reich as a way to condemn it. Um, that's something you don't have in other countries. And and, and that's part of the strength, I think, of the movement. Um,
1: So talking about um, other countries, we are at the end of the 70s. So in uh, economic policy circles, this is a time where neoliberal ideas really come to the fore. The Keynesian paradigm doesn't seem to provide answers. And in Germany, you talk about a new language coming up in economic thought. Yeah, so what,
0: one interesting thing in Germany is you see energy economists and other mainstream economists uh, develop a new paradigm that I call ecological modernization. I mean, it's not my own term, other people have, have, have used this term, but it's I, I argue that this is an alternative to neoliberalism. Uh, it's, it's a set of ideas that wants to use the state uh, to guide the economy in a very particular direction, actively to guide it towards a better ecological future and to think about growth in a way uh, that makes growth green. Um, so it's not an anti-growth set of economic ideas. It's, it, it aspires for growth, but it wants to make growth green and it wants to use the tools of the states to get the economy to where it needs to be. Um, uh, and 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 this emerges across Europe. Uh, in in fact, in many ways, some of the er ideas of this come from America. Uh, that, that there's a lot of intellectual ferment, transatlantic intellectual ferment, where German economists are reading American economists and and looking at the energy modeling that they're doing. Um, they they read environmental economists like uh, Nice in America. They read. More kind of uh, statisticians or planners like Hudson and Jorgensen, who developed this model for how you can use energy prices to kind of manipulate the economy. And they put it together into a new framework in Germany um, uh, where they use particular kind of tools that they say, above all, tax, you know, come up with an eco tax, but also use the banking system uh to fund uh, green investment, right, through kind of a modern day or, 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 a, or an anticipation of, of green industrial policy to, to get the state to go or to get the economy to go in a green direction. It's people like um, Klaus Michael, Michael uh, uh, Klaus Michael meyer Abich, Bertram Schiefold, uh, 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 Hans Christoph Binswanger, who's actually Swiss, that they... They developed this whole new paradigm uh, that informs subsequent policymaking uh, and to not leave the market unfettered, uh, but to use what levers the state has to kind of guide the economy.
1: So now we are entering the 80s. We have a conservative government in Britain that completely changes the approach to uh, energy. We have privatizations. Uh, We have Ronald Reagan, of course, in, in the States. And starting from, I think, 1982, we have a conservative government in Germany as well, right? What are the policies pursued by um, the coal government?
0: You know there's a lot of discussion about how neoliberal Germany was in the 1980s compared to America and Britain um, or even compared to France after Mitterrand's turn um, and 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 the consensus seems to be that there's kind of a soft neoliberalism or a neoliberalism light that there's certain fields uh, you know that, that Germany does try and go neoliberal in um, but but other fields where it doesn't it doesn't touch kind of social welfare benefits but it does do some privatization for example Um but in general, energy policy kind of takes a backseat uh, in the CDU uh, fdp government of the 1980s and even into the 1990s, um, uh, despite Chernobyl, that there's not a lot of active guidance. So the SPD uh, in 77 and 78 actually launched some really groundbreaking energy efficiency programs and pumped a lot of money and developed new techniques for promoting energy efficiency in the economy. And you see uh, German total energy use peaks in 1979 and 1980 that's partly related to the second energy crisis but it's partly also related to these new these new subsidies and these new incentives a lot of those laps uh uh, under the CDU government, uh, and and you see energy use increase again in the 1980s, uh, and energy efficiency decline in Germany. Uh, that that you know, the SPD had paid a lot of attention to building efficiency in terms of heating, and the S and the CDU after '82 pays very little attention to that. Um, uh, the CDU does do some interesting things, though. That climate becomes uh, climate change becomes an issue in the mid 1980s. Uh, there's a uh, meeting in Villach, Austria, that kind of makes it an issue on the international level. Uh, uh, the German Physics Society issues a big report in 86 that says, you know, the world is going to be warming. Um, and then Der Spiegel runs its famous, you know, cover issue that shows the Cologne Cathedral underwater because of melting glaciers and, you know, rising sea levels. Uh, and and this is something that, you know, begins to politicize climate change. Chernobyl then happens in 1986. Um and the CDU designs, you know, this interesting strategy to say that we need nuclear power to fight climate change. And this is when you begin to see that argument made. Um, that's and the anti-nuclear movement uh, is not really thinking as much about climate change. They're thinking about social organization. Uh, the CDU is kind of thinking about climate change, um, uh, and SPD is as as well. But the CDU crafts a strategy that says we need nuclear power to. Uh, you know, fight the climate crisis, they actually organize a parliamentary inquiry into climate change uh, in in 1988. And it's published, I think, in 1990. It's a huge report, you know, it's it's just has great graphics, uh, you know, and and says what we all know today. Uh, In fact, I use part of that in my introduction to to say, look, we're facing a climate crisis, we need to do something. Um, But uh, after Chernobyl, there's a consensus, uh, you know, social consensus that there's not going to be new nuclear reactors, but the CDU very much wants to keep, you know, nuclear reactors online, and 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 makes arguments about climate change to you know to keep them on. They, they also have an interest in brown coal as well. So that uh, uh, that that takes some some advances as well in the nineteen eighties.
1: Now we have been talking for almost an hour, and there's a big elephant in the room, and I'm sure um, all our listeners want to know more about it and that is natural gas and Russia. Tell us about it.
0: Okay, gas and Russia. This is uh, a huge infrastructure that costs a lot of money, that was built uh, over the course of decades, that began as uh, a policy of Ostpolitik, as a way for Germans to reach across the Iron Curtain under Willy Brandt and Egon Bard to open up to to, to Eastern Europe and to get Eastern Europe to open uh, so that, there could be better German-German rapprochement. Um, And that natural gas was seen as an obvious um, uh, commodity to facilitate this Ostpolitik. The, the Soviet Union had discovered these incredibly huge deposits of gas uh, in Siberia that they had a hard time tapping and no big market to sell to. So they needed the technology and they needed the market to sell to. Um, and the Germans have some of the best uh, and most efficient n- metallurgical uh, and electro engineering companies. Uh, and so in some ways it was a natural pairing. Um, it's not the Germans who actually initiated this It's the Austrians and the Italians who got involved in this first, but the Germans uh, helped make this kind of on a big scale uh, in the 1970s. Uh, And uh, so this, this kind of pairing between... Russian energy riches uh, and German technology was inspired by AusPolitik, but it gained a lot of momentum coming out of the first oil crisis of 1973. The uh, the German economics ministry, uh, uh, Chancellor Schmidt, um, begins to think of gas as an alternative and a more reliable alternative uh, from the Soviet Union than Middle Eastern hydrocarbons. And, you know, Schmidt says this on a number of occasions that, you know, that, that, that the Soviet Union is a more reliable energy partner, as long as we keep German energy imports or, or, or Russian imports below a 40% threshold um, that, that, that or, I'm sorry, below a 30% threshold, that, that, that this is going to be more reliable and more politically acceptable than reliance on mm-hmm. Middle East hydrocarbons. Um, uh, but, but this, And and sorry, just just to backtrack, that there's uh, a lot of German jobs that that get created as a result of building this infrastructure. Uh, uh, Mannesmann AG is a big steel company. Uh, AEG uh, is involved in this. Um, And they are both, in the early 1980s, you know, suffering major unemployment, this is a period of, uh, of economic stagnation, high unemployment in Germany. And one of the biggest pipeline deals, the Yamal pipeline is pushed through right in this moment of kind of economic malaise, where all the Germans are worried about unemployment, and these big German marquee companies are getting these huge contracts that are employing 1000s of people, right. So that's part of the untold story, I think that this is a jobs, there's a jobs argument, as well as, uh, you know, kind of an auspolitik argument. Um, and and, and it's it's and, and the German banks are underwriting it, um, you know, as well. So they're involved. Um, but this creates uh, transatlantic tensions from the beginning that one of the major, you know, th- there is an earlier 1960s row between. Uh, uh, West Germany and America over the West Germans helping build uh, Soviet oil pipelines. Um, this is repeated then on a much larger scale in 1981 and 1982. And I, you know, I, I'm not the first person to tell this story. There's a lot of great literature on this of this this kind of big uh, uh, energy rift between America and Europe, uh, Germany in particular, where America <laughs> wants to stop uh, the the construction of this massive pipeline um, and. You know, there are very interesting statements from, I think, Richard Perle, uh, you know, a security advisor who, who says, look, Europe can't be buying hydrocarbons from the Soviet Union because, you know, they're going to cut it off and they're going to be left stranded. Um, but Schmidt uh, and others push ahead with it and say, you know, jobs are more important. and So they they, they they basically go against America and put German export interests and jobs ahead of this, you know, these larger geostrategic uh, um uh, uh, questions um, And then there's a very interesting story, you know, if I have time to talk a little bit about the expansion of natural gas uh, pipelines in the 1990s, that there, the whole story is the Russian uh, economy implodes after 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, energy demanded Russia collapses uh, by, you know, uh, 30 or 40%. You know, maybe even more. And so there's this massive Russian gas bubble that Gazprom, the successor of the Ministry of Gas, is sitting on that it needs to do something with. And so they begin looking for outlets in Western Europe. Um, Western Europe is beginning to liberalize its gas sector as well. This is coming from the European Union level. uh, but on the German level, uh, there is kind of this oligopoly of big gas companies, ruhrgas in particular, that owns and controls the network. But big gas companies are paying in Germany, like uh, 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 BASF, is paying an arm and a leg for gas. And so they want to build their own natural gas pipelines. And so there's this kind of uh, interesting uh, collision where you have Russian gas bubble, desire among German uh, gas-consuming companies to access this, and so they enter into negotiations to build their own new pipeline network. And so this is the origin of kind of Gazprom's influence in uh, the German economy. That, that comes in the context of liberalization and the fall of of uh, you know the collapse of communism, because East Germany is is you know begins to replace. Uh, lignite coal with natural gas. Um, you know, th- th- this is another kind of mini any energy transition that I talk a little bit about. That th- this is uh, the 1990s is the moment when combined cycle gas turbine technology kind of breaks onto the scene,
1: uh, and and so they begin to use this
0: uh, in you know in the east.
1: Something before talking about the last part of the book, which is about the the energy end. What does the unification of Germany mean for? Uh energy policy? For
0: energy policy, it it crushes a lot of big ideas that were in gestation. The SPD and the Greens were saying we need to redo our fiscal system around an energy tax in the late 80s. Uh, Even Klaus Topfer in the CDU is saying we need a carbon tax. Uh, The ecological modernizers were calling for a carbon tax uh, in the late 80s. And reunification puts all that on ice. It it just makes all of that moot. uh, and, And so it in some ways it, it delays things the only thing that happens and um, is this 1990 feed-in law which is a minor thing that, that allows solar and wind power and also uh, kind of co-produced heat energy from 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 factories to be fed into the grid uh, and and this is done as, as, a, as a sympathetic nod to a backbench MP in, in Bavaria who himself, his family owns a hydro dam, right? So he's, he's complaining that he can't feed his own hydropower into the grid and getting bad rates. And so he, um, you know, makes a motion, uh, for, for, um, changing the way that uh, Germans can feed energy into the grid. Interestingly though, uh, that in this 1990 law, the conservatives begin to use the language of ecological modernization and say that we need to fight climate change and that uh, fossil fuels are, are, are uh, generate all these externalities. Uh, and, and that's actually in the legislation, which is interesting. Uh, uh, and, and they use this to justify this, this kind of, what at the time seems to be a minor law that allows solar and wind and hydro to, to get fed into the grid and to get paid a certain amount of money for that.
1: So let's move forward to the end of the century, uh, the late 90s. And um, there's a new government in Germany, a new coalition, a red-green coalition. And the government talks about this energy vendor. So this energy transition. So it's a vast program to clean up the economy.
0: Yeah. So this, uh, again, there's... The context is important. This is a period of late 1990s when German unemployment is high. Germany is considered the sick man of Europe after almost a decade of kind of very difficult uh, integration of the East and the West, high government budget deficits. um, uh, That there's also uh, a lot going on in the global oil market with the East Asian uh, uh, crash in 1997, but then the rise of China, and so oil prices are going haywire and 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 then uh, increasing dramatically, uh, not as much as in '73, but but quite high. So there's a lot going on, and the green the, the the red-green coalition, you know, has had these ideas about an energy transition gestating since the 1980s, uh, and they w- want to use this as a way to solve the unemployment problem and to fight the climate problem, uh, and really as a way to modernize the German economy, because they think that solar and wind are going to be the new big export markets. And that's a huge argument. And so they, they link energy, and green energy in particular, to jobs and to exports and to modernization. Uh, and, and, and those are almost more important than climate change. I mean, climate change is there. Uh, you know, they, they, use, they, they talk about fossil fuels and the legislation generating externalities. But, but what brings other groups on board like uh uh, the machine industry um sorry the machine tool union as well is is the argument of jobs and exports um and and so they you know, bring together this very interesting coalition that, that includes kind of this reform wing of the Social Democrats led by Herman Scheer, who in, in in my book is kind of a big protagonist who has been pushing for these ideas for a long time, along with the Green Party, uh, you know, as well. Uh, and they try and they, they do their 100,000 roofs program that offers subsidies to uh, solar power, uh, uh, sorry, solar panels. They, they do a new, vast expansion of the feed-in tariff, which... The big thing about this is it pays a very high fixed and predictable price for solar and for wind. So before the price, the feed-in price of solar was was linked to the market, but now it's fixed, and so people get a, a predictable amount, and it's really a really a high price. Like solar gets seven times, something like six or seven times the price of conventional power. So if you produce solar, you make a lot of money. It's a huge windfall profit. Uh, and those are two of the biggest, big, big things. Uh, the third thing. It's often go, goes unnoticed is that they turn the credit anstalt for Wiederaufbau, which is a big state led investment bank into a like a, a financial bazooka that spends a lot of money uh, uh, investing in green energy. And a lot of the loans that come to build up the solar and the wind sector come from this and they're low interest rate loans. The first year for solar, it's like a zero or a 1% interest rate. So, you know, the, the state is basically giving capital to free for free to solar producers saying you can have guaranteed profits, free capital, uh, do what you will. And so you have this explosion of solar um, um, uh, production or or installation, so much so that you get these global silicon shortages in the mid 2000s. And this is what sparks the Chinese to come in, right? So they kind of make their big foray into solar partly at home, but also by selling into the German market and undercutting solar uh, producers in Germany. Um, the third so, so there's an eco tax as well that they passed. that gets watered down. That, that was gonna, supposed to be kind of the main thing, but it, but, but it gets watered down. Uh, and then, of course, there's the nuclear phase out, which is, you know, disappoints the Greens, disappoints the reformist SPD. But they push it through anyhow because they say, you know, a deal to end nuclear is better than no deal. And we have to get what we can get.
1: So um, as we approach the end of our conversation, let's talk a bit about what are the major um, events in energy policy in the Merkel years after uh, the red green coalition?
0: Yeah. So one, one is obviously deepening uh, the relationship with Russia, um, you know, pushing ahead with Nord Stream two, despite protests from allies. uh, And I don't, You know, there's there's a lot of people who have written more about that. uh, But but that's that's a big energy decision that's that's kind of a non decision that's that's made by her. Um, But she also and here the SPD, the conservative wing supports her becomes concerned uh, in the mid 2000s that the cost the feed-in tariffs are too high, and they uh, the grand coalition revises how the feed-in tariffs are done and moves to auctions and makes it a lot harder for community-based, local, kind of small-scale solar and wind to be built um, and privileges kind of larger-scale companies, and this really also slows down the development of wind and solar in the mid two thousand in in the two thousand and teens, and so that that kind of kind Of nuts and bolts policy decision, the move to auctions does have, uh, uh, you know, some major problems and I think slows the advance of the German energy vendor and, and leaves Germany more reliant on other things than it could have been, uh, more, more reliant on other types of energy, fossil fuels than it could have been had the feed ins continued as they had been operating, um, although the costs of those were, were quite
1: high. Well, I don't want to take too much of your time, even though. I really love the book and I still have so many questions. Um, I'm just gonna ask what is next in the pipeline? What are you working on at the moment?
0: All right, well, thank you, Filippo, uh, for this stimulating conversation and for letting me you know, talk about the book. I really, really enjoyed. I'd, I'd love to, kin- you know I'd, I plan to continue working on energy history and I'd like to do it on a European level. So I'm thinking of uh, a larger book that looks at European-wide energy policy from the 70s up until the present as a way to really give kind of more fine-grained analysis of, of the EU, European community, and how it interacts with different countries.
1: Well, I can't wait to read it and to have you back on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Professor Stephen Gross. Thank you.